Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. I want to talk today about that passage that Ashley read. And in his just incredible letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. Martin Luther King pens a letter and he's sitting, he's been in prison, and he takes a pen and he puts it to paper. And he's been put in prison because he was leading a boycott of the bus system in Birmingham. And so you would think that Dr. Martin Luther King would be writing a letter to the local politicians or the, the local p- police force, the people that have the power to remove him from prison. But that's not who Dr. Martin Luther King is writing to. When he sits down in that Birmingham jail all alone, he pens a letter to his colleagues, his fellow clergy, specifically the white clergy that were present in Birmingham and in the South as a whole. And Dr. King writes, he says, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Dr. King is saying, you're mad that we're, we're boycotting but you haven't stopped to consider why are we boycotting in the first place? He says, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. You hear Dr. King? I had hoped, I had hoped you would understand But again, I had been disappointed. You see, Dr. King thought that if anybody recognized why he was there, it would be his fellow clergy. Dr. King thought that if anybody would listen to him, it would be those who are charged as pastors to listen to others. And yet, as he says, yet again, I have been disappointed. Dr. King's letter is a masterstroke. I mean, if you read that letter and you realize this man had no sources, He's not sitting there with a stack of books. He doesn't have Google. Like he's just pulling all this stuff that he references from memory. It's an incredible thing. But it's basically this masterful retelling, this long, drawn-out expression of this one simple truth. You're not listening. You're not listening. We're here in Birmingham because of a vast injustice that has been perpetrated upon our people. And yet, as much as we cry out about it, the white clergy and the larger religious structure is not listening to us. And in Acts 6, we have a similar situation. If you're paying attention when Ashley read. We have a similar situation within the earliest church, but with a vastly different outcome. And I want to look today at that because it's so important for us as we seek to be the Jesus people shaped in the Jesus way that we see that, that this, where this text meets us today is calling us to be the kind of people that Jesus would have us to be. So we pick up the story in Acts 6, verse 1. It says, Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Okay, I, we need to stop here and unpack some of this stuff for just a moment. The Acts 6-1 tells us there's two distinct groups within the earliest church, Hellenists and Hebrews. And the church prior to about Acts 8 is almost overwhelmingly Jewish. 
Because Jesus has come as the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one who sits on the throne of David. This is the story that they are telling. And what will become evident as we walk through Acts is it's that story, that very specific story, which is really the true story that explains, as N.T. Wright says, explains and transforms the entire world. But still, in this point of the sequence, of the narrative here, this is a largely Jewish movement, but we have two subsets within this Jewish movement, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And the earliest church understands themselves as followers of this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected. And this is the story that they are telling. And the Hellenists were not the people who lived in the promised land. You see, within this story, there was a land that was given to Abraham and promised to him. The Hellenists were people that had been scattered throughout what was then the Roman Empire. And they had been faithful as Jewish people. They had lived out what it means to live their faith, but they'd also lived it far away from the land that they thought that God had given to them. And the Hebrews, the ones that lived within the confines of the Holy Land, in and around Jerusalem, they just they thought the Hellenists were kind of compromised. They thought they were just a little lesser. And you know, like I don't know if you ever do this. I, I kind of do this. I sort of like, I have these things I, which have no basis in reality. I have this thing I do with Pennsylvania. I just don't like Pennsylvania. I prefer New Jersey. I, I like a lot of people from Pennsylvania. I'm sure it's a fine place to live, but every time I drive across the bridge, I'm just like, yeah, how would anybody live here? And again, there's no sense to it. It has no common sense or any sort of basis in reality. But we do this, right? We just kind of like, who are the people that are not us? And how do we make sure that we at least kind of reinforce that narrative in our head? And this is kind of what has happened here. The Hellenists are no less faithful than the Hebrew people. They had been moved by an empire, largely, who said they had to move. It wasn't their choice. It wasn't a decision they had made. And so we had these two subsets that are present in the church in Jerusalem. But what we see is a problem that would would repeat itself throughout the life of the early church and friends it repeats itself throughout the life of our church here in 21st century america today the church is mimicking and mirroring the patterns of culture the church has taken the narratives of culture and applied them to their life and what they find is that that is not the way that Jesus has called them into. But we see this over and over again. The church is simply mirroring society. They're taking that preconceived notion of the other, and they have imported it into the church. Pastor Rich Velotis writes, At the core of racism is the lie that some people are superior or inferior to others. This happens across all different people groups. Each of us has our prejudices, and the vast majority, if not all of us, have been formed by an ism of this world that creates barriers between us and others, whether that be classism, racism, ethnocentrism, sexism, ageism. The earliest church has imported a paradigm that was not, was not integral to what it means to follow Jesus. They say, oh, you're, you're Hellenists, so we know you're not quite doing everything right. And many of these Hellenistic widows that are described here in Acts 1, 6 have come to the Holy Land in order to live their last days and die and be buried in the Holy Land. Like, this is actually an incredible expression of faithfulness on their part. They would live very poorly because they didn't have the resources in that space and the family ties that would support them, but they wanted to live out the last of their days in faithfulness to what they thought God had promised. 
And what we see in the earliest church is not some ideal thing going on here that, you know, again, this story is another one of those, like if you were writing the Bible and you were trying to make it up and gloss over the story in so many beautiful ways, you would not put this in here because it doesn't make anybody look good, right? What's present in the earliest church, frankly, is that the church is mirroring society, it's mirroring them with their sort of racist or classist assumptions. And when the Hellenists Notice here, start raising objections. They say our widows are not being treated fairly. They're not being treated with equity. And they raise the complaints of them being uh, treated unfairly. The Hebrews don't accuse them of being divisive. They don't accuse them of being Marxist. They don't accuse them of being people who are not uh, living out the truth of the gospel. What do they do? The earliest church doesn't say, well, you should go over there because all of your problems are too much for us. No, the earliest church... There's something profound that we could learn from today. And listen. They don't say, oh, it's not really your experience. Oh, it's a, you know, that didn't really happen, did it? No. They, they listen. And in listening, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it creates room for a new expression. It creates room for these people to come to the table. In Ecclesia, our first impulse when we are confronted with our own participation, in, whether it be racism or any of the other isms that uh, Pastor Rich mentioned, is we try to distance ourselves from these things. We say, no, that's not, that's not me. That's not, that's not what I intended. Or we do the theological move. And this is very common in our days. Well, that's not, that's not what the gospel is about. That's not, that's not Jesus is about saving our souls. But what we see... When we read the book of Acts and the scriptures, is that what we find are two conjoined themes. First, the message is first for us. It's not for everybody else. The message is a call to repent. And, and Jesus doesn't come saying, hey, everybody else needs to repent. You were doing everything fantastically. So glad that we had you as a model. Uh, but can you go tell everybody else that they need to reform their ways? That's not what happens. The call is to repent and be baptized, to receive the grace of this Jesus, who through repentance makes a way for eternal life. That's the first thing. But the second, in the same breath, the good news about Jesus is not just a message about how our individual souls get to go to heaven when we die. Not some get out of hell free card that we get to present to God at the end and say, look, I was baptized. I follow Jesus. That's not what it's about solely. The good news about Jesus, because of his cross and resurrection is that Christ has poured out his spirit to anybody and everybody who will receive him is that we are empowered to live a life in light of the new creation that is broken forth right in the midst of this one that though this world is broken and dying there is a better way with better news and that is good news to an entire world that aches to be known by a loving God who made them and loves them and wants them to walk in his ways you see these two themes are calling us to life right here and right now. Repent and be baptized and then live in light of the new reality that has broken forth right in the midst of this one. And yet, when we revert to our cultural assumptions and patterns, we live out a way that is contrary to the way of Jesus. Jamar Tisby wrote a powerful book on the history of sort of the, the way the white church has been intertwined in many ways with assumptions about slavery, assumptions about white supremacy. And he writes of 
the hope that he has for the church. And he says the revelation of the heavenly congregation, this is Revelation 7, where John sees a multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. He says the revelation of the heavenly congregation provides a blueprint and motivation to seek unity right now. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians have been mandated to pray that the racial and ethnic unity of the church would be manifest even if imperfectly in the present. Christ himself brought down the dividing wall of hostility that separated humanity from one another and from God. This is Ephesians 2.14. Indeed, reconciliation across racial and ethnic lines is not something Christians must achieve, but notice this, but a reality that we must receive. On the cross, when Christ said, it is finished, he meant it. If peace has been achieved between God and human beings, surely we can have greater peace between people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. The earliest church listens to those who are saying they are not being treated fairly. The earliest church, the leaders of the earliest church don't say, oh, you know, you're just playing the race card. They don't say, oh, you're just trying to import these other themes into something that's not about Jesus. No, what they say is, tell me about that. And as the earliest church listens, they don't stop there. There's a book by sociologists, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, where they basically write that the, the larger evangelical strategy of, of you know, white Christians has been like, friendship will heal everything. And what we see is that through our lived experience, and through the experiences of Christians and sisters and brothers of color, is that that is often not enough. Often this is where we stop. And we're generally grieved that we've participated in a culture that might devalue and treat others inequitably, but we don't really know what to do. But the earliest church, as they listen to the lived experience of those who have been treated inequitably, do something else. They change. They respond with structural change. They adopt new leadership. They invite new people into the fold and give them authority. These names, Stephen, Nicanor, uh, Philip, who take the center stage in just a moment. They make way through structural change for reconciliation. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil writes, Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's intention for all creation to flourish. When we covered Acts 2 and Acts 4, I said the point is not the actions that the church was sharing all their possessions, but the point, the heartbeat of the earliest church, and the heartbeat that is supposed to be the heartbeat of every church in every time and place from there on since is love. God's love received, his love poured out for us. The story of Jesus confirmed by the Holy Spirit. The story that his cross, his death, his resurrection is for you. And it is the story that explains and transforms not only our lives, but this community. And the earliest church, in response to the complaints that are offered by the Hellenistic the Jews, the Christians that are among them, they appoint leaders to ensure that the Hellenistic widows are being cared for. Not because they're simply trying to mimic social expectations of justice, but because that is what love demands. And they are a community marked by love. Cornell West of Princeton fame says that justice is what love looks like in public. 
and ecclesia in response for us as a people. And we get to live this out together. It is a vision for us, not as any one person has to take a hold of all of this, but us collectively living in community together. And in response to racism, white supremacy, consumerism, and so many other powers and principalities, that, that we have to make structural changes that reflect the realities of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom, as Paul the Apostle writes powerfully, is the kingdom where the, the, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. Jesus, as he dies on the cross, it says that the curtain in the temple was torn, that the reality has fundamentally shifted because of what Christ has done. He's broken down the wall that divides humanity from God, and he's broken down the wall that, that divides neighbor from neighbor. And friends, we don't have to work at tearing down the walls. Acts doesn't call us to be demolition workers. Acts calls us to be witnesses. What we see in Acts is to be a witness, is to undergo a fundamental orientation shift, a structural change in our hearts first, receiving the reality that we don't have it all together, that God has made a way himself for us to receive this Jesus story, that there's nothing that you can do to achieve it, there's nothing that you can do to make your way to God, that he has done all the work, that he has poured out his life on our behalf, he has made a way. That is the first thing that we bear witness to. And the second thing is we live as the new humanity. And we'll see throughout Acts that this is often done with kicking and screaming. Peter does not want to go to Cornelius' house. But guess what? For those of us who are not Jewish, we are so glad that Peter went to Cornelius' house because the message about the cross of Christ was proclaimed to the Gentiles and it just keeps expanding. Keep going to all the world. Keep going to those who seem the least likely to receive this message. A structural change. A fundamental change in our orientation. I don't know if you've ever heard of Clarence and Florence Jordan, Martin and Mabel England. But in 1942, they started a farm called Cornania Farm. And in the Jim Crow South, you know, racism was just as rampant as it had been throughout the Civil War era, Reconstruction era. They're saying, like, how can we live out a different way? How can we declare to the world that we actually believe that what Jesus has called us to is the way that we should live our lives, that perhaps Jesus meant what he said? And so they started a farm. And for them, it, it, this meant an intentional community of believers sharing their lives and resources. Sounds like Acts 2. It said, others' families soon joined, and the visitors to the farm were invited to serve a period of apprenticeship in developing community life on the teachings and principles of Jesus. They called those who were on their farm koinonians, which koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, largely, kind of an intentional uh, life together. It says, Koinonians shared not only faith and resources, but also work. We farmed the land for our livelihood and sought ways to work in partnership with the land to conserve the soil, God's holy earth. We preached, taught, and were members of local churches. And from the beginning, Koinonians emphasized the brotherhood and sisterhood of all people. And we, when we could afford to hire seasonal help, Black and white workers were hired and were paid a fair and equal rate, wage, which again, not the culture of this time. When the community and its guests and workers prayed or ate a meal, we all sat together at the table. Segregation is south, all sitting together at the table, saying that the way of Jesus supersedes every way that we would adopt, supersedes every cultural assumption that we have imported into this way, sitting together at the table. 
Our commitment to racial equality, pacifism, and economic sharing brought bullets, bomb, and a boycott in the 1950s as the KKK and others attempted to force us out. And we responded with prayer, nonviolent resistance, and a renewed commitment to live out the gospel. Amen. Friends, what we see in Acts, Acts 6 is that we all do this. We import our stuff into the life of God. And what God is calling us to is to listen. Listen to our neighbors. Listen to the Holy Spirit that is moving among us. And then to say, okay, how do we begin to step into the reality of God's new world? Because for all of us, we project. We do this thing where we project what we think God is like. And that can serve us in some ways. Okay, God is fine with me just kind of living my life the way I want to because, you know, God's doing his thing, like he's getting me to heaven, or, you know, I show up to church on Sunday, I sing the songs, and then, you know, I go away from there, and that's kind of, that's our negotiated truce. So we do that in ways that serve us, and we also do that in ways that don't serve us, because friends, I, I want to just land this here today. God is calling each one of you into his story, each one of you into the vibrancy of his new life. But so many of us project our assumptions about God. So many of us project what we think God is like, and then, honestly, because that image is not that beautiful, it's not that compelling, it's not that inviting, it looks like somebody in our life who was maybe not the one you'd invite to the party, we stay at arm's length. And what God is inviting each one of us into is His story, the power of this. I, I don't know about you, when I hear that story of Cornelia Farm, when I read the story of the earliest church, like there's something in me that I'm like, let's go for that. Like, let's pursue that. But there's so much that we bring into, so much baggage and luggage that we bring in. And what I want you to see today is that God has invited us into this kind of life. A life that listens, a life that makes change. But first it has to start with each one of us. Is that God is inviting you to see him for who he is. Jesus has shown us fully and finally what God looks like. In the past, Hebrews 1 says, God spoke in many ways, in many places, but he has spoken fully and finally in his son, who is the exact representation of his being. What does God look like? God looks like Jesus. And that is a great, great gift. And so friends, you may be here today. And the Holy Spirit, which is present here as we sang about, may be convicting you and just saying, like, there may be, need to be some changes in your life. But friends, that is the way towards grace. That is the way towards flourishing and fullness. As we see it in the collective life of the earliest church, if they did not make a change, the earliest church would have died out as a small sectarian movement. But because the Holy Spirit had other plans, a plans not for just Jerusalem, a plans not just for Samaria, but for the ends of the earth, that God's Spirit breaks out and keeps calling more and more people into this life. And I want to just bring that down for you at a very heart level. He has called you into this life, not just everybody else, not just the world. He's invited you into his story. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.